Before we get started, JJ and I's new book, Marketing Made Simple, comes out next week. If you haven't pre-ordered it yet, go on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, pre-order it. Forward your receipt to book at storybrand.com. That's book at storybrand.com. And we will send you a pass to the Marketing Made Simple Summit. It is five unbelievable videos that really explain how we built this company. We just let it all fly and let you know from the back end. We interview members of our staff, not just me and JJ. Members of our staff will tell you how we built this company. Just go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, buy Marketing Made Simple, the book. Dr. JJ Peterson and I are the authors. Forward your receipt to book at storybrand.com. You'll get the summit, but you also get the book, which is a step-by-step marketing plan that's going to help you make a lot of money. We're excited about the book coming out. You only get to release one of these every year or two, and so we're really excited. We hope that you are excited, too. We've already sold, by the way, thousands and thousands and thousands of copies in pre-sales, so it's doing extremely well, but you don't want to miss the boat. Marketing Made Simple. Get the book today. Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hello, Don. J.J., probably one of the better interviews we've ever had on the show, period, happened today. And I've only said that maybe, maybe 33 times. (laughs) (laughs) But I get really excited. We get so excited about everybody we have on. It's pretty amazing. Bruce Deal is on the show today. He wrote a book called Trust First. Okay, so let me give okay. you the background. Okay, Bruce wrote this book based on his experiences moving his entire family, four daughters, uh-huh. into the worst neighborhood in, in the entire Southeast. More crime, more gunshots, more murders, more drugs, more gangs. Oh, wow. He did that with his four daughters, his four baby <laughs> daughters. And his philosophy about helping people and changing the community is no matter what, mm-hmm. no matter what, Trust them first. Mm. Don't make them prove it. Start with trust. Yep. Wow. Counterintuitive? A little, but <laughs> but I I love to think of people. I, I love to try to start thinking the best of people first. I really love to start out with that kind of mind frame. I think it just creates a better space in the world. And do I get taken advantage of sometimes because of that? That's his he, he says that. He says yeah. he gets taken advantage of quite it, a bit. But yeah. then I mean it's true, but and and some people think it's naive. It's not naive. Mm. It's actually a, I think it's, it's certainly whole, not naive if you know if you're not naive. Yeah, I'm not naive. I'm not gonna you know invite murderers into my house for dinner. But yeah. at the same time, I want to start with thinking the best of people first and see what we can do together to build a better world because of that. Well, I actually drove down to Atlanta to talk to him. I didn't want to do this one over the phone. Yeah, I, I, this guy is incredible, and he, he's moved into this neighborhood uh, 15, 16 years ago, yeah. and now he's got a 30 plus million dollar operation that is teaching people how to become chefs like he has a culinary school mm-hmm. he has a coding academy mm-hmm. right there in <laughs> yeah. the worst neighborhood Amazing. in the entire southeast yeah uh he's teaching uh nursing i think he's teaching hair care he's teaching um automotive mechanic yeah stuff he he has inside of the warehouses that he's bought he's built a little village with beautiful little homes inside and women who are pregnant uh who have been in prostitution and some human trafficking he, he gives them a home there i'm gonna start crying for real he's the toughest guy i've ever met mm. I mean, he may have a big heart. He's sensitive in there somewhere, but he's getting in knife fights. He's disarming people. Wow. You know, he's unbelievable. Yeah. And and, and you talk to him and you just go, okay, it's not that he's not a dynamic personality. He is, he's an interesting personality. Yeah. He's a dynamic human being. Yeah. He's not a salesman. Mm -hmm. What he does is interesting. Yeah. And probably the biggest lesson I came from just spending a couple hours with him the other day was I I just came away going, hey, hey, Miller, we're going to stop talking and we're going to do more. Yeah. We're going to do more. I'm not going to go on Instagram talking about how I'm going to help with something. We're just going to go do it. We're going to go yep. quietly do it. 
so it's partly a, an episode about execution, but it's partly an inspirational episode. But really, it's an episode about leadership. Yeah. And what it takes to really lead. The book is called Trust First, Counterintuitive Idea, but this guy is using that idea to change the world. His name is Bruce Deal. He runs an organization in Atlanta called City of Refuge. And uh, even guys like Simon Sinek, they're now holding their workshops there. <laughs> like they would normally use a giant ballroom yeah. at a big hotel. Cynic's like, no, I want to do it in your cafeteria. Oh, so he's it. bringing all these Ernest and Young employees to the city of I refuge. I love it. It's brilliant. I mean, the guys, you know, Bruce Deal is changing the world, and I can't wait for you to hear from him. Here's my conversation with Bruce Deal from City of Refuge, author of the book Trust First. Bruce, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks so much for the invitation. Honored to be here. I came down to Atlanta, and I'm sitting inside of what used to be a distribution center in the worst neighborhood, you know, statistically, in the southeast, not just Atlanta, in the entire southeast. So there's a lot of murders that happen in this neighborhood, a lot of crime, a lot of drugs. This is a distribution center that used to be here. And you have built out a home inside of a warehouse. You just put up some drywall, and you and your wife live here. Next door, you have an automotive center where you're teaching people how to work on cars. It's sponsored by Napa, am I right? That's correct. Across the street, which is really an alleyway, as another part of the distribution center, you've got a, a job education center where you're teaching people how to be cooks. You're teaching security. You're teaching coding. And then when I walked in, there was a job fair, which only happens about every two months, but there was a job fair happening so people could come with those skills and find work. You have housing for women who are in trouble and bad guys are looking for them. You've got drug rehab programs. You're running two churches on this property. It's four acres fenced by with a steel fence, and you are changing the world here. That sounds crazy. How did all that start? Yeah, that does sound crazy when you say it out loud. Um, yeah, 22 years ago, I came downtown on assignment to close a little church a couple of miles from here. You were so a pastor? I was, I was on staff at a church. 22 years ago? 22 years ago. I'd been in traditional ministry 14 years. I was you, asked to come, you had been at that point? I had been, yeah. Were you a youth pastor or associate pastor? Yeah, I was a pastor? youth pastor and associate pastor over that time. Led trips around the world, mission trips, and spoke at a lot of different events, and so life was fine. There was nothing wrong. Ron and I had four daughters at the time and had a good life. I was asked to come downtown, and uh, what was presented to me was a six-month consulting assignment to potentially close a little church, sell the property. And uh, so You mean a church was looking for a pastor, and they said, can you come in for six months and help us wrap this thing up? Yeah, that's what the bishop of the organization thought should happen. The church sort of wanted to keep going, but there were just a few folks left and building in disrepair, no money. So yeah. my assignment was to sort of close it and sell it. Gotcha. Our fifth or sixth Sunday, a young lady in crisis walked in and asked for help, and we helped her. And the next Sunday, she brought somebody else in crisis, and the next Sunday, they brought somebody else. When you say in crisis, what were these young women going through? Well, this young lady, her words to me were, I've been hooking and stripping 14 years. Can you help me get out of the life? The next guy she brought in was a, a functioning alcoholic that was one of her paying customers. And she said, I'm no longer going to sell you sex. Will you come go to this little church with me? And he did. The next week, a couple crack addicts showed up. The next week, some heroin addicts showed up. Did you have any training or understanding of how to interact with these complex issues? Absolutely not. I mean, I grew up in the mountains of Virginia in a two-parent household, went to college, uh, you know, had been around the world to do some missions kind of stuff in some third-world countries, but just not interpersonal relationships with folks at that level of crisis. What was it about, and I'm asking you, to not be self-deprecating for the sake of everybody else who finds themselves in these situations. 
what was it about you that said, okay, I don't know how to fix this, but I'm just going to do something. I'm just going to take whatever action I think I can take and try to be helpful without giving in to the fear of I'm just going to make this worse and somehow screw this thing up. Yeah, I think there's two parts to that answer. One, my dad was that kind of guy, so he just modeled it So he modeled me. it. Yeah, my whole life. And is that, what is that? Is that a very strong bias toward action? What it's a that? very strong bias toward action. It's a very strong bias toward spending most of your time with those who do not have versus those who have. Your father was like that. My father was like that. Sort of sewed that into me, you know, as natural as the innate part of my who I was. The second thing was that I felt like it was my providential call, right? I just felt like this was what I had been created for, that, uh, you know, everything to that point in my life, I was 37 at the time, that everything to that point in life had gotten me ready for that assignment. And what were those things? I mean, you sound like you're describing the life of Joseph in many ways. One, you're not conflict avoidant. That doesn't freak you out. You don't mind the tension. You don't mind the complexity. You don't mind moving into the nuance, all that stuff. So you're wired that way, right? But what is it specifically about growing up in Virginia and having the dad that you had? And what, what did you go through that would make you go into an inner city and be comfortable with a, a crack addict or a prostitute and know I can help these people? Yeah, I was slight of stature growing up. So I was in fights weekly through middle school and high Just school. Just because you're defending yourself against Just bullies? Just defending myself. We moved a lot. My dad was a pastor. He's an itinerant minister. So I'm, I changed schools 10 times in 12 years. So every new school, you had to prove yourself again. Everybody wanted to see what you're made of. So played sports and fought a lot just to try and prove myself. So it sort of had that fighter mentality. I've always been considered to be a little bit outside of the normal path of life. So, you know, that takes on some negative connotations. Sometimes people call you a rebel or a maverick, but I just always wanted to do something different than the way it always been done. So I've been in traditional ministry 14 years and it was fine, but it was the way it had always been done in my mind. So this was an opportunity to do something totally different, totally outside the box, something that, frankly, would make the normal, regular church feel uncomfortable. <laughs> and so that actually enticed me. There was a little bit of a rebel mindset within the church structure that you understood at the time. Yep. Would you accuse the church, the government, all sorts of institutions of hiding their fear inside of bureaucracy and all that stuff? You know, instead of doing something, we hide inside of committees and... I'm sure that's true, and, and especially and, my first 10 years or so, I've carried a good deal of anger and bitterness, frankly, toward traditional church and the government for the way they do things. I've come a bit more to understand that it's not so much out of their rebellion or unwillingness to admit, it's just out of an ignorance that they don't really know. And of course, they're not going to admit that. They're not going to admit they don't know how to deal with And they the may person. not even know that they don't know. Well, that's true. Yeah, yeah, they may not. And so it's more of, now it's a bit more of a compassionate feeling I have toward things that are traditional than it is an anger feeling toward them. I'm actually sorrowful that they miss so much of the joy in life that comes when you sort of get among the least of these. I would imagine if I put myself in your shoes and, you know, I've done mission work and these kinds of things, but... To have somebody come to you and say, hey, can you help me out of this life? That's not a 10-minute, 15-minute conversation. That's You're going to have to do life with this person for probably a long period of time. That's a great observation and one that Rhonda, my wife, made just a couple years in. She made a statement. She said, you should understand that many of the people God sends to us will be with us for the rest of their life or the rest of our life, whichever comes first. And you were okay with that? I can't promise you that I was okay with it, but I was resigned to it. I realized that there are some people 
because of their educational deficiencies, because of the abuse they've suffered in life, because they experience opportunity injustice so early in their life that they just simply don't have the tools or resources to exist on their own. They will always have to have a support system. And so resigning yourself to that makes it okay. Yeah. I want to come back to the young woman, the very first young woman who walks through the door. I want listeners to know I'm not leaving that story. But it's fascinating to me. At one time, you guys had 16 people living with you. You moved into the neighborhood. Right. And you actually took folks into your home. Where was your... I'm projecting, right? I want to know if I did this, here's the things I'd be wondering. Where's the me time? Where's the introvert time? A lot of people compartmentalize and separate their quote-unquote ministry or charity from just their suburban life that's really just the American dream. And they separate and compartmentalize those things. You gave up one of those things. You gave up the uh, maybe the American dream part, and you now your ministry is your life. You come home to it. It's there. You leave. It goes with you. Was there a grieving process? And I'm, I'm just asking honestly. Was there a process of like, okay, I'm dying to myself. I mean, that's a biblical idea. I'm dying to myself here. This is life now, and I need to grieve the fact that it's just never going to be normal again. Most folks don't understand my response to that, frankly. Yeah. Rhonda's actually the one who, in her own quiet time, felt like we should move to the city. So we left the suburbs. We actually moved into the third floor of that 65-year-old church building with our four daughters who were seven, five, three, and one. Uh, and what kind of neighborhood? Was that this neighborhood? No, but it was just adjacent to this neighborhood. It was, it was a tough enough neighborhood that we lived there six years, broken into 34 times, three vehicles stolen, and I've been as pure court guys who threatened to kill my wife and children. Bruce, you've got four daughters and you're getting broken into 34 times. I mean, some people would accuse you of being irresponsible. And that would be a fair accusation. <laughs> but it was still how, what how we How many felt guns like. did you own? <laughs> <laughs> it was still what we felt like we were supposed to do. So Rhonda yeah. and I reflect now, we look back, our fifth daughter was actually born while we lived there. We brought her home to that environment. We had 16, 17 people at a time living with us, crack addicts, alcoholics, drug dealers sitting at the dinner table, you know, it's in the book, Prostitutes Babysit Our Children when we would go out to dinner, mm. you know, that had in, had these incredible backstories. We just knew it was what we're supposed to do. The risk, when you know that you are in the middle of your purpose, risk becomes a secondary thought that you rarely even engage. So, I mean, you're going to have to unpack that. Explain that. When you know you're in the middle of your purpose, you don't think about the risk. You, or maybe you think about it, but you just know this is where I need to be. Risk is the enemy to the fulfillment of purpose. And so if I'm unwilling to engage in the risk, I will never experience the joy of the f purpose being fulfilled in my life. That's true in so many areas. In every area of life, ministry, business, marriage, every place we engage, if you're unwilling to engage in the risk, you'll miss the fulfillment of the purpose. Do you think most people are unwilling to engage in the risk? Absolutely. Yeah. I think most people live... And you mean that non-judgmentally. I know you well enough that you don't judge people for that, but you just, I, I was you unwilling just think to they're engage. missing out. Yeah, I was unwilling to engage, even though I was frustrated... In my traditional role in ministry, 14 years, I didn't do anything about it for 14 years. Yeah. Okay, let's come back to the girl who comes through your door, and she brings a John with her who's got an addiction problem. What's the next step for them? How did you intuitively, what did you do next? When she said, can you help me, I automatically responded yes and had no idea what that meant. So a couple hours later that day, we started a conversation. I figure out she needs somewhere else to stay because she's staying in an environment where her lifestyle is pushed and accepted. So we moved her somewhere else, got her somewhere to stay. We gave her enough resources. She have a pimp? She did have a pimp. That create tension between you and the pimp? Of course. Yeah, I mean, it created tension. Thankfully, we were able to get her out before the pimp realized what was going on. That hadn't always been the case in 22 years, but it was mm -hmm. then. 
Uh, we were able to give her resources, financial resources, so she didn't have to worry about how to make money that week. And we were able to provide food. And then we were able to provide individuals that would come alongside her and just be her point of reference when she needed to make a phone call. Was that members of the church? Or it was. was that? Yeah. yeah. And so they bought there. in too. They bought in. Uh, you know, there were three dozen folks when we showed up. All but three of those eventually left. Uh, <laughs> so buying in is relative, right? right? They were there for a while until the population from those from the street increased to the point there was a greater majority of those in crisis than there was not in crisis. Were they coming to church on Sunday morning? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's the way we knew. We weren't inviting them to come back because I had a home in the suburbs and a great job to go back to. So you thought you were wrapping this up here. Yeah, we months. were still praying for them and then helping them find resources, but they wouldn't go away. And so four months in, we walk in and they're nearly a hundred drug addicts, alcoholics, homeless folks, crack addicts, prostitutes in this little church going, can you help us? Hmm. And I looked at Rhonda and, you know, my deep thought was we've been conned by God, woman. I mean, it wasn't our plan. It wasn't <laughs> our intention. Yeah. So it just sort of surprised us. And by then we were so far in, we didn't know how to say no. You can say yes, but you, you need money. And you need resources and you need volunteers. When did you realize you're not leaving this area? Uh, that four months in, that Sunday I knew, went back to my senior pastor where I was on staff and shared with him that I felt like this is what we're supposed to do. That church actually did an incredible act of generosity. They then sponsored Rhonda and I for the first six months. So they paid our salary and sent volunteers. And we formed a nonprofit city of refuge and just started raising money. Frankly, for the first two or three years, I just called everybody in my phone and ask them to give us something until we started building the process of development and fundraising. This is not unlike a startup business in some ways. You have an idea for a product, you create the product, you got to find the money for the product, the product starts selling, and now you got to create processes in order to scale. The processes that you're creating here, you don't know anything about. You don't know anything about what it is to overcome a heroin addiction or an alcohol addiction probably don't know much about what, you know, overcoming a life of prostitution or the complexities that are involved in that. And now you got to create processes. I just want to point out to everybody listening that there's this bias toward action that steps into the risk and is willing to do it wrong a couple times in order to get it right, where most people it would shut them down and they would never actually help anybody. So walk me through what it felt like to actually say, we're going to create a program, an addiction recovery program. Can we just start there? How much of this is addiction? Well, a substantial amount of it's addiction. Mental health, addiction, lack of educational aptitude, all of those things are contributors, right? So we deal not just with those that have been homeless. We deal with those coming, returning citizens from incarceration, those coming out of addiction. We deal with veterans who are suffering PTSD. Uh, big emphasis is on the survivors of trafficking and exploitation. So there's multiple ingredients that have led them to this point in time. So what we decided was the best way to do this was through collective impact. So find best in class and other organizations that would come alongside. So we have a full-blown medical clinic, but that's somebody who's been doing medical care out of the Catholic Church since 1886. Mm -hmm. Why would I create my own medical environment? We have daycare on campus. We have uh, private Christian school on campus that are other 501c3s, but we invite them into the space. We build the space out according to their specs. 
We pay for the maintenance of security. We ensure it, and then they're able to spend all their energy and time on raising money just for operational dollars. Yeah. So we become a hub, and that's what I learned early on, Don, was this is not mine to own completely. This is mine to manage. So we will do which, the parts we do really well, and then we will find best in class to do the other parts so that we have the comprehensive service plan for those individuals in crisis. Well, we fast-forwarded probably 10 or 15 years. You were in a church when we left, and then you're talking about a medical clinic inside your facility. So how did you go from the church to, again, the building that I described earlier that we're sitting in now, which is a four-acre distribution center? Yeah, woke up six years into the process and realized, uh, back to your point earlier. You moved, real quick, had you moved into the neighborhood in that six years? No, we were still in the building, in the oh, church in the suburb, But were you yeah. in the suburbs personally, or were you, did you come down and live yeah, here? Yeah, we were oh, living you, in oh, that's that right, church. you lived at the top yeah, of the church. Third yeah. floor of the church for six years. And you asked earlier about personal time, quiet time. There was none for six years. So literally standing in the shower one day, homeless guy opens the bathroom doors and goes, Hey, ghetto, they call me the ghetto rev. Hey, ghetto, are you in there? And I go, yeah, I am. You want to hand me a towel? I mean, literally people walking in our house, sleeping in our house. And it just got to where it was too much and we'd outgrown the facility. So we found this space. It's actually eight acres of land with five acres under roof. And it was on the market for $1.6 million. And our counter offer was we don't have any money. And, and this uh, was, from what I understand, this was a distribution center that the neighborhood got so dangerous that nobody actually wanted to come down here to work anymore. Correct. And so that is why it was for sale in the yeah, first Yeah, that's place. why it was for sale. Uh, the owner eventually, after six months of relationship, donated it to us 16 years ago. And we moved in, and it was just concrete floor and brick walls and a roof that literally you could see the sky through. And uh, we just said, we're going to build a one-stop shop. When somebody comes here, 98% of what they need to get life in order will be on this one campus. And we started that journey 16 years ago. 16 years ago. And it's recently gone from a few million to... 30, 40 million a year, right? Well, our campaign was 23 million plus gotcha. the operational budget of eight or nine million a year. Yes. Yeah. So it's grown after, you know, people could come here and go, wow, this is amazing and think that you did this in a few years, but it was a long, hard row in the same direction. Yeah. It was a long, yeah. And obedience, that's to your point. We call obedience is simply a long, slow walk in the same direction. Yeah. And I mean, so that's Eugene what we Eugene Peterson done. might have said that yeah, too. Yeah, he might have. Yeah. And so we stole it from him. So, we just continued to do the thing, and so it grew gradually for about 13 years, took an upward tick nine years ago, and then about six years ago just sort of shot straight up. I'll be right back with the rest of my conversation with Bruce Deal. Hey, if you want somebody to do your marketing for you, you're tired of trying to figure it out yourself, you don't understand Facebook ads, you don't understand how to make a website, you don't understand Squarespace, you need a guide. You need a marketing guide who can actually do it all for you. They will execute your marketing plan for you. We have trained them here in Nashville over a four-day training. They come, they spend four days with me, they spend four days with JJ, they spend four days with Kula. We show them how a sales funnel works to our specifications, which are extremely high. And then if they pass an assessment, they get to become a guide. And then year over year, the better guides tend to kind of rise to the top. If you go to marketingmadesimple.com, that's marketingmadesimple.com, you can interact with these marketing guides who can create a sales funnel for you. Stop wasting money on marketing. Hire somebody to do it right. Get it done this year. Go to marketingmadesimple.com. You have a book called Trust First. When I introduced you, I talked about it. And the idea in the book is that when somebody walks through your door, you offer them trust initially. You don't wait to see if they're trustworthy. That's a counterintuitive idea. 
And I want to know what is the genesis of that idea? You actually named your book that because I think you believe that that's a revolutionary, life-changing idea. If we want to change somebody's lives, we should trust them, even when they haven't earned our trust. How did you come up with that idea, and what does it look like in practice? Yeah, you know, I, I just thought about the fact that in almost every arena of life, you have to prove yourself before you can be trusted. So if you're applying to university, you have to prove your test scores are strong enough to get in, and right. then they'll trust that you can be a student. Trying out for a sports team, you have to prove yourself, and then they'll trust you to carry the ball or be the pitcher. You know, you're going for a job interview. You have to prove your resume and references in the background. And I'm like, how many people have missed the opportunity to be great athletes or great professionals or great students because they couldn't prove themselves on the front end? Mm -hmm. And if you're coming from crisis, you have no proof that you're – smart. You have no proof that you can hold a job. You have no proof of any of these things that we measure you by. So we just said, hey, everybody that walks in the gates, we will trust them until they prove to us we can't trust them. So we decided just to flip the coin. You don't have to prove anything on the front end. We don't have to know that we can trust you. We're just going to trust you. And you may eventually show us that that was a bad decision. We're willing to take that risk. And what it does, Donald, is when you trust somebody the first time you meet them, all of a sudden it creates self-worth, self-value. How do they feel that trust? Well, first of all, how do you really actually trust them? I mean, that trust is not something that you can just do. It, it's got to come sincerely. Well, You're trusting people who have not indicated that they are trustworthy in some ways in the way they've managed their lives. Yeah. How are you honestly doing that? Well, practically, the prostitute comes off street corner. She goes in our bedroom that night and spends the night. My daughter's in the bedroom down the hallway. Mm -hmm. That's trust. She's yeah. an addict. She may steal something during the night. Ryan was 14 years in the Gangster Disciples out of Cleveland, Ohio, came to Atlanta because another gang had put a contract on his life. The first day we met him, after 14 years running a Gangster Disciples robbery crew in and out of prison, the first day we met him, he moved in the warehouse. We gave him keys to the front door and keys to the room where he was going to start sleeping. The next day, we gave him keys to the vehicle. That's trust, right? Now, he could have taken all of that and— How did he feel about that? What, well, I mean, he, he was stunned, literally stunned. To this day, he's been with us now. He's 14 years past his 14 years in the gang. He would die for me today. He just says, you trusted me when nobody would trust me. You were confident that I was somebody that I didn't know I was before I was. Mm. You know, and you can say that out loud, but without some physical expression of that, it's just words. So you hand them the keys to your house. You hand them the keys to your vehicle. You allow them to come and go without so many regulations and restrictions. Have we failed? Have we missed that? A hundred times, a thousand times in 22 years, of it, course. By the say you failed, you mean that people have broken your trust? Right, yeah. yeah. I mean, and, we, and how do you respond to that? I respond to that by focusing on the ones that honored my trust. We spend very little time talking about failure. We spend very little time talking about the ones that ran away with our things. Very little time talking about those who lied to us or took advantage. We spend almost all of our time talking about the success stories. And, and this one took advantage of the resources. So it's all about the positive affirmation. It's all about celebrating the victories. We spend very little time focusing on the negative. That's amazing. Were there nights, I'm curious, when you were scared to death? You thought, we've gotten in over our heads? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I've, uh, again, my background is such, you know, I've chased guys down the street at 1, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning in my underwear with a baseball bat to what get are you my chasing stuff back. What are you <laughs> well, they had broken in and stolen stuff, and I decided gotcha. I wanted it back. So I went after them, you know, barefooted, no shirt, no shorts, just running down the street. I've had guns pulled. I've had knives pulled. I've had to disarm people. Yeah, there have been... There have been a number of times where literally in my mind I thought, 
you could die in the next five minutes. But, you know, when you get to that point, you're going to fight to live because, you know, there's something worth living for. It's the reason we're here doing what we do. You got four girls. Was your fifth a girl also? Yeah, five girls. So you got five girls. Somebody's got a knife. They could take your life right now. That just seems counterintuitive. To I mean, the mission you felt is that strong. That, I felt the mission is that, that strong. And I mean, frankly, I guess what I would say is, is you're risking leaving these girls fatherless. Yeah, but I'd never considered it that way. I consider the fact that I will leave my girls without an example of what a warrior for those in crisis looks like if I don't go to battle with somebody with a knife, hmm. right? So if they're without a father, at least they're without a father who was willing to fight for the least of these and who didn't have anybody else to fight for Do they for know them. that now that they're older? Oh, absolutely. You got grandkids now. I got five grandkids, one on the way. Yeah. My oldest daughter is my executive assistant. Our second daughter runs our anti-trafficking program, survivor program. She served over 730 women that have been sexually trafficked and exploited. Yeah. All my girls believe in, they buy into it. They're part of it. Yeah. What do you say to the business community about this trust first idea? You've had Simon Sinek in here. He ran a little workshop in here. Business communities in and out of this place doing uh, counseling with job creation and job education. You've got your board of directors as a who's who of really rich, powerful people, and they love this place. They're crazy about this place. What do they learn from you in terms of this idea of trusting people first? It's a, because you know somebody breaks your trust three times, and you learn your lesson, and you stop trusting them. That just seems very intuitive, right? And you would say, no, you keep going and you figure it out here. You try to figure out how to transform these people into professionals. Yeah. What are they learning from you? Well, I think they learn, number one, not to prejudge environments, atmospheres, or individuals, right? And we're wired to do that. We're wired to, to automatically judge our Those are defense environment, mechanisms. our atmosphere, and individuals. So I, I think people are learning, don't prejudge. Number two, I think people that come to our campus learn that there is some level of value and worth in every individual. It may be buried so deep right now that not even they know about it, but if you're willing to walk that journey with them, the reward that they will gain is so great because they become who they were created to be, but the reward you get because you were part of that journey to me is even greater. I think people are starting, and this is a balance in the business world, I understand, but I think people are starting to understand that profit is not always the end result. If you change people's lives for the better and they help to change their families and their communities for the better, and if you also happen to make more profit, that's good. But if you change the environment in which you live, that's a greater value proposition for the entire world. You talk about transforming lives, whether they're an investor, you call your donors investors, whether they're an investor or somebody coming through the doors who need help. What changes a life? I mean, practically, what is needed to take somebody who has been abused as a child, found themselves in either a human trafficking situation or prostitution, which are very, very similar and maybe the exact same thing, or forced labor. That's happening in this neighborhood as well. It's all human trafficking. Then they find themselves in addiction. They have been thrown out by society. Rehabbing that person and bringing them into a healthy, normal life is not a slow process. Have you guys recognized the process? These are the important things. You know, is it spiritual health first? physical health, food, shelter, safety, education. What is the process? So coming from where I come from, from a ministerial perspective, it's a real simple process from John chapter 4, Jesus' story with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. He was intentional. He went to the well at noon when nobody else showed up at noon. He knew she was coming by herself. He was intentional. 
He was practical. He asked her for a drink of water. He didn't act like he had all the answers. He asked her, what can you give to me? He needed something from he her. He needed something from and her. And demonstrated that need. Absolutely. Is Third, that? I want to stop you real quick. That's number two, so let's not forget we're going to number three. How do you demonstrate a need for somebody walking through the door who needs you? Well, we say, hey, we need the warehouse cleaned up. Can you help us with that? Gotcha. We need landscaping taken care of. We need somebody to go over in the kitchen to do this. So we, how we how important them. is work for self-esteem and a feeling absolutely of Absolutely essential. People have to put their hand in their heart to something in order to feel valued. Yeah, absolutely. It can't just be words. No, yeah. absolutely. So he's intentional. Three. He's practical. Third, he's relational, right? So he asked her about her family. What about your husband? He wants to know about her. He's not about a program. He's not about a process. He's not about, I'm going to make your life better. He's like, how's your family? What's up? What's up with your husband? And so we sit down with people. We go, tell us your story. Tell us where you came from. Tell us at the right time. And then after we get to know them, so we're intentional, we're practical, relational, that then gives us an opportunity to have what we call an eternal discussion, Mm -hmm. right? How do you get the rest of your life in order so all of your life, even after the physical life, it can still be in order? We don't ever lead with the spiritual. We don't ever lead with the eternal. We don't ever lead with the gospel, even though that's who we are. We lead with felt needs. You're hungry, we feed you. You're homeless, we give you a bed. You don't have clothes, we give you clothes. You need a job, we put you in job training. So we start, we're very intentional on all those programs you mentioned early in the broadcast. So we're very intentional with those. We're practical, right? It's things that we know they need. The key for me is the relational. If you're unwilling to sit down in their mess and have a conversation about how they got to their mess, they don't have any interest in hearing you tell them how to get out of their mess. Hmm. You have to demonstrate that love and commitment. It has to be lived out. I mean, yeah. it has to be lived out. And I think that applies, frankly, in the business world, the church world, anywhere. I think you have to be willing to sit with people where they are, move forward from there. In business, for example, and, and I love the way in StoryBrand you talk about the guide. And so that we're the guide that's mm-hmm. just helping people. They're the hero, right? The investor yep. or the person we're helping. But we're just the guide. And so knowing where they are is critical in order to know where they need to go. And so many nonprofits that I consult with around the country, one of the challenges that I see is they have a plan and a process that they just want to stamp. It's a template that they want to put on everybody that walks in. The fact of the matter is not everybody's starting from the same place or has the same background. So it has to be tailored to every individual. We've served over Which 20, requires 000. relationship and listening and slowing down and putting somebody else in front of you and all this stuff that's actually quite hard. Yep. Can't be done any other way. Yeah. You got people in this community who work here who left high-paying, high-powered jobs. And, you know, they could be in American C-suites making, you know, a lot, a lot of money. And they spent a week here or something, and then they decided to quit and come work here. Why do you think they're coming here? Purpose. It all goes back to purpose for me. Yeah. You know, everybody was created with a purpose. I believe that. And, and if their purpose is to help build other people's lives and to put that back together and give them hope and a future, then they're willing to abandon something that others in the world might think is more important yeah. in order to see that purpose fulfilled. I can identify that. You can spend a few hours here, and you immediately start thinking, me and Betsy's supposed to move in. <laughs> you, can't, you can't help but think about it, right? Betsy, if you're listening, we're, we're okay for a minute. But I also heard a story, and there's many, many of these stories, about a young woman who came out of prostitution and some addiction and is now making $85,000 a year and comes back to visit her alma mater, which is City of Refuge. Right. When somebody walks through the door, you know, and you know their backstory, what does that yeah. do for you? I don't know that there's anything more rewarding than somebody returning to this campus and saying, you guys changed my life. 
you know, the programs, the love, the relationships. You know, one of our survivors, we were just in uh, downtown at the Capitol two weeks ago. She helped co-write a bill to protect survivors of trafficking and to punish the traffickers. So one of our residents that went through the program that's now a staff in, that, in the House of Chair at the Anti-Trafficking Program is now one of the authors of a bill being passed by the Georgia legislation. How do you celebrate beyond that? I mean, it's just yeah. incredible. So that's all we need is to see them move to a place uh, well, you know, we measure by independent self-sustainability and contributors back to society. Independence, self-sustainability, and then... And contributing back. Is it in that order? It's in that order, yep. And how slow is that build? It depends. Inside of a person? Well, it depends. I mean, it depends yeah. on the level of trauma they experienced before they got here. You know, all the ingredients, education, experience, addiction, their mental capacity. They, you know, we've seen people, lives transformed in a month, and we've seen people that have been living on our campus three-plus years. We're not even close to independence yet. So we just don't measure it. You know, people ask us about our success level. We don't even try to measure it, frankly. We know how many people have been here and how many people have graduated, but we measure success in every individual's lives differently. I was over at the job placement and, and training facility this afternoon, and it looks like a multi-million dollar facility right out of Silicon Valley. It's beautiful inside there. Then you go into the culinary school, and I met uh, the chef who runs that school, just seems like a guy who could walk right out of a Michelin star restaurant. How important is quality and excellence? None of this feels like a charity, I guess is what I'm saying. Well, good. I'm glad that's the impression. And it, do, it also got. doesn't feel like you're, you know, you're wasting money everywhere. You know, right. but it just feels like somebody would be proud to go to school here, to live here, to work here, and interact with this community. How important is that? level of excellence to your mission? So our four core values are passion, excellence, dignity, and integrity. So I just tell our staff, you either feel this or you don't. You know, one of our running lines is, if you don't feel it, it'll kill you. If you do feel it, it might kill you, but you enjoy dying. So you have to feel it, <laughs> right? Our second Can core, I steal that for story brand? <laughs> yeah. Our second core value is excellence. If we're going to do it, particularly as a faith-based organization, if we're going to do it in the name of God, we're going to do it to the highest level possible. We would rather do less better than doing more. Hmm. We're going to make sure it's excellent. We're going to treat every individual from the biggest investor to the person at the deepest level of crisis with dignity, know their name, know their story. And integrity means that we're going to steward every dollar, every dime, and every volunteer hour to the best of our ability. So excellence and passion are sort of the two key words, if you ask any of my staff. That's what we strive to work with and serve with here. I do have to ask, because I know we've got a lot of nonprofit leaders who listen to this podcast, thousands of them. 16 years, you know, you saw a big increase in investing recently. What are the, some things that you would say to nonprofit leaders of, hey, listen, you got to remember these things if you actually want to grow your mission? What are they? Yeah, really good. And I'm, I'm going to be real practical here. They got to have a powerful board of directors. You got to have people that believe in you, that work with you, that are willing to let you cast the vision and then fulfill that vision. Secondly, a strategic plan is critical. You got to know where you're going or you, don't, you can't figure out if you've gotten there or not. And the third thing is a development and fundraising strategy that fulfills your purpose, but is also does not wear your people out. Hmm. And so I just see a lot of times as I consult with others that that they don't have an active board or it's not functioning at the level it should, that they are doing good work, but they don't have a strategic plan as to how they're doing a good work. They're just compassionate in heart, but not excellent in performance. And then the fundraising thing, too often nonprofits are, have a poverty mentality themselves. 
So they think there's a limited amount of resource, limited amount of money and volunteers, and so they're always trying to scrimp and save and do things at a smaller scale. And they're competing with people who, you know. And so those three things are critical. We do a little nonprofit summit every year, uh, Nonprofit 101, and have folks from all over the country come in and just sit together. And we just talk through those processes and, and try to help people dream bigger and operate in a more excellent fashion. I would imagine as you look at culture and some of the problems that are happening, and especially, well, our rural areas are almost no better than our in the city. But And then you probably see, you know, especially here in Atlanta, now I bet you there's two to 500 churches with five to 10,000 people in them. And churches could solve a lot of these problems if they... And I think they all want to. They're not wired the way you're wired, and they don't know how. And you know, two questions to end. One is, how big is the need for more organizations doing exactly what you're doing? And then, can the church actually solve these problems if they duplicate your model? Or is that not something that you recommend? Yeah, so question one, there's a huge need in every area, rural and urban, for the model we have. The Brookings Institute quickly, 10-year study on poverty, said you have to address safe and affordable housing, quality educational opportunities, health and wellness, and a livable wage opportunity upon graduation from high school in order to have an opportunity to be middle class by middle age if you're born into crisis. If you address all four of those things, there's a 93% chance you'll be middle class by middle age. If you miss one, there's an 87% chance you'll live in poverty all of your life. And so what happens right now and what we were guilty of for years is nonprofits work in silos. So we're doing one of the four things, but that essentially amounts to a Band-Aid on a heart attack. And people have to go to four different nonprofits, which they're not going to. Which they're not going to do. They get four different case managers. they got to find child care. It's just complicated. So, yes, there's an incredible need all over our country, around the world, frankly, but all over our country for the model of collective impact. Secondly, you know, the church sort of unintentionally abdicated its position during the Great Depression. So, so much poverty existed that the church used to care for all the poor in their community. Once That's the great, where our hospital systems came from exactly. and all sorts of other yeah. stuff. So once the Education Great Depression too. hit, government stepped in because the church couldn't afford it at that point in time to do it. And we just never took it back. We just left it with the government and moved forward with that. Churches can do it, but I think we have to think differently than we did before the Great Depression. I think churches should actually now identify with best-in-class nonprofits and bring a part of their resource and a part of their staff and their volunteerism they should to partner that organization. With people who are doing it. Exactly. They should partner with those that have figured out a formula that happens to be successful in their community. Bruce, you've talked about really not calling this a nonprofit, or at least not thinking of it as a nonprofit, but a for impact. Maybe that's just semantics, but it's very important semantics to you. What's the difference between a for impact organization and a nonprofit? Yeah, and you mentioned Simon earlier. He's the one who challenged me on that. We, we were having a nonprofit summit. We talked about nonprofit, and he goes, what, in, what does that even mean? He goes, you're a for impact. You're, you're changing people's lives. And we just adopted that. We said, you know what? We're working to change individuals, which will change families, which will change communities, which will change cities, and then the ripple effect continues. So when you, you know, when you say nonprofit, it doesn't even invite people's question. They just assume who you are. When you tell somebody you're a for-impact organization, they automatically go, tell me what that means. And it opens the door for us to give greater explanation of who we are. Well, not only that, I would imagine it positions you in their mind as less of a charity and more of an actual chance to take my dollars and do something incredible with it. Absolutely. People want to invest, not donate, as we mentioned earlier. They want to invest. Yeah, you talk about that too, the difference. You don't call them donors anymore. You call them investors. And I imagine that's more than just semantics. It's the way you think of somebody who's actually writing you a check. 
Absolutely. Uh, we just tell people you're investing in radical life change. If you want to invest in the survivor program from trafficking, you're investing in somebody's life moving from here to here. If you want to invest in job training, then you're investing not only in the individual, but you're investing in the economic benefit to our whole country. Right. And so we just position that, that you're not a donor. We don't want something that you feel like you're giving away. We want you to fill an investment. And if people feel like it's an investment, they generally invest time, talent and treasure because they don't want to they don't want to see it as just writing a check. They want to see the written check. Then they want to see where that goes. And they want to touch the hands of the people that that dollar helped to impact. You mentioned earlier the idea that you don't really measure or count the numbers. And I should say I'm in your facility now. There are hundreds of people. There's a buzz around this place. It really does feel like a, a community college campus meets a Silicon Valley operation meets a, you know, whatever. So there's a lot going on. There's very clear impact. I would imagine that once you start measuring impact, you start figuring out, even subconsciously and unintentionally, ways to pad numbers ways to get people through programs when really maybe they were rushed through and it didn't create life change. Why did you never give in to the temptation to that? What stopped you from that? What kept you so genuine, genuine work, making genuine transformation and genuine people, and this is not a show? That's a really good question. I think it goes back to our fourth core value, integrity. You know, I just didn't want to over-promote who we were. You know, this, this is who we were. When we had 10 people we were helping, that's what we had. I could tell people we had 100, but if they visited campus, they were going to know I was lying, right? So it's like, okay, let's just be honest about who we are. And then the second thing that just sort of naturally began to happen in my own life was I'm not, I don't, I'm not worried about counting how many people I've helped. I'm worried about how I've helped people, not how many, just how I've helped them. And so it's, it's much more important to me to know the Ryan story, the Vanessa story, the Jake story, than it is to know how many Ryans or how many Vanessas or how many Jakes I had. I don't have a real clear answer as to how that happened. I do know that early on in our journey, I would tell investors when they would say, what do I get for my dollar? And they would want me to give them a number back. I'd go, you get life change. You get transformation, <laughs> right? If they had to have a number, we're probably the wrong place for them to invest. I would imagine with some people that they actually want to give more to that because they sense the authenticity of the mission. And in contrast, they might feel like some of the other stuff they've given to is not so authentic. You know, I mean, it just feels like you've got to get those numbers up. The stories move people more than the numbers. Yeah. You need the numbers. You know, we do a 990. We have an audit every. We do all the things you're supposed to do. And we post all that publicly on Charity Navigator, GuideStar. Anybody that wants to know anything about our dollars, the number of people we serve, it's all public information. Mm -hmm. It's just not something we lead with. We lead with the individual life story. And people are captured by that more than they are by the numbers that we serve. Well, if you want to read stories that inspire you, the book is Trust First, Bruce Deal, D-E-E-L. You can get it on Amazon or wherever you buy books. Bruce, uh, an inspiring conversation. And for a bunch of business leaders, I think we're all sitting there going, boy, maybe I need to spend some more time with my clients and actually really solve their problems rather than cut them short whenever I get their money. <laughs> There's something yeah. there for all of us. <laughs> In fact, we probably need to do that with our spouses and our kids. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, all, it's everywhere we are. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you. JJ, inspiring. So inspiring. It really is. I mean, you know, the, you spend a little time with him and you realize, I mean, you know, it starts, you start to second guess yeah. everything that you're doing, which is not his intent. 
Yeah. His intent is to, is you go do this where you are. You do what you need to yeah. do in small ways. Not everybody devotes their whole lives and brings their four kids into the worst neighborhood and those kinds of things. But it's re- it was really inspiring coming back and having conversations with Betsy. You know, we're moving into this beautiful new house and, and we're talking about how do we use it? Yeah. How do we live and sacrifice inside this home in order to have it build something beautiful and improve people's lives and solve yeah. problems, mainly around loneliness you know, and yep. how do we build community? Yep. You know, here those kinds of things in very, very small ways. You know, he's he's one of those shooting stars that yeah. that you kind of watch and get inspired by, but no excuses. No, right? We all have to. He has a strong bias toward. Did you catch the strong bias yes. toward action? <laughs> yeah, he's not thinking yeah. about it. Well, he's jumping you know, in. As we record this, we just had a tornado come through Nashville. Yeah, and all of us at Storybrand are okay. Literally, yeah. like it's just no. Go do something. Be a part of the. Yeah, solution. If you got a chainsaw. You're needed. Yeah. Yeah. And go pick up trash out of a neighbor's yard. I yeah. mean, that's and that's even this weekend that there's just a huge drive, and a number of us are going out and working. And, and then and to, to, to you know, that's how we introduce ourselves to it. And then to take a deeper dive and actually understand these the way somebody's life has actually changed. Yep, that to me was fascinating when he talked about that. The the things that you have to bring together to actually change lives. He's figuring it out. So Bruce Deal is his name. If you've never heard of City of Refuge, look him up. Uh, they're always great to have you come by and visit. Yeah. So if you're in Atlanta, swing by and say hi to the, the gang over at City of Refuge. It's a massive complex full of people. I mean, it's like a, it's like a back lot in Hollywood. There's yeah. just people everywhere <laughs> doing awesome things. So we definitely want you to know more about City of Refuge. Also, next week on the podcast, JJ, you and I are releasing a book next week, like yeah. eight or nine days from the day this podcast <laughs> yes. comes out. Marketing Made Simple actually comes out. Yeah. And uh, that's next week. If you want to go get the book, get it on Amazon, forward your receipt to book at storybrand.com, and you'll be registered for our Marketing Made Simple Summit, in which we explain how we built this company, or the marketing plan we used to build this company. But next week, you and I are going to play a game. Yes. Kula Callahan (laughs) challenges us to see if we actually know our own book. Yeah. (laughs) And she challenges us to literally every 60 seconds... You and I have to come up with a money-making tip for the audience. That's from the book. That's from the book. Yeah. So next week, if you listen to next week's podcast, you will get 30 money-making tips <laughs> under pressure from yes. our boss. Yep, from our boss watching over us, it's making gonna... sure it's actually in the book. So pay attention to the podcast next week. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's music on Apple Music or Spotify. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business.